It is great to see everybody. I don't know about you. This is a nice full room. Uh, it sort of feels like you would tend to sit naturally anyway, right? I always want to have two or three chairs like between me and somebody else. It's like the movies. <laughs> so, it's great to see. I bring greetings from uh, your family uh, in Sovereign Grace from Covenant Fellowship Church. Uh, it's delightful to be here. I also bring some apologies from the rude behavior of my brethren in Pennsylvania a few years ago. Apparently some got out of hand and weren't as hospitable as they should have been. Don't apologize for the way the game turned out, but I do apologize <laughs> for the behavior of the people. There's always those people in your life where you don't want them to get out and be among other people, and that's half our city. So, <laughs> but uh, so great. So turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 5. Like Nate said, uh, your pastors have asked me to talk a little bit about uh, the issue of um, ethnic harmony today. Uh, I come feeling a deep awareness of what you've experienced in this part of the country over the past year. My, my hope and prayer for this time has been that my voice would mirror the heart of God for you as a congregation of God's people during your own story of faith and mission. Now, you would look at me and could understandably ask, what would a guy like this have to say about ethnic and race issues? Point taken. I don't look like somebody that would be thinking a lot about this. I thought before we got into the word, I'd give you a little bit of my own race and grace story. And as we meet together, we have a core team of folks who are trying to help the church walk through these things. We, we take time, we meet monthly to, to tell our race and grace story. But, and by that, I simply mean, what is my story of redemption in Jesus Christ? And how has my race or ethnicity played into that? What we like the idea of doing is that whatever ethnic background I come from, whatever racial orientation people assign to me, uh, that's played a part in how Jesus Christ has met me, has come, he's met me there. And so we talk about that. So um, we call it a race and grace story. Uh, like Nate said, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia in the 60s. Um, he didn't say that in the 60s, but you could tell probably I'm from the 60s. Um, it was still the segregated South at that time, though it was changing. I remember the Civil Rights Movement as something that seemed mostly mystifying to me as a kid growing up. Uh, but I was just a kid, grammar school. However, I could take you even today to that spot on Dresden Drive in Shambly, Georgia, where in 1968, I was coming out of my third grade elementary school and with my family from a Cub Scouts meeting. And we got into our red Rambler and my dad started the car and the radio came on and the report of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination had came at us through the radio. And I remember back then the, the effect on my parents in Atlanta hearing about Dr. King's assassination and their fears and worries about what would happen 
for that, and that left a deep impression on me. My race experience with black people in high school was we were in an integrated school, but it was socially segregated. Um, The only time we mixed was in sports or drugs or occasional fights. In college, uh, I swung way left. I became a Marxist. And um, until God rescued me, 1981, 40 years ago, on February 10th, uh, called me out of darkness, called me out of foolishness, saved my soul as a senior in college, and I came to know him and follow him. Um, I moved to Philadelphia a couple of years later, 1983. My wife was from this area. We met in college. Uh, and so after being back in Atlanta for a couple of years, I decided I would, I would have to move up to Philadelphia to chase her, to, to, to trap her up in Philadelphia. And so that's what I did. Um, but I came up to Philadelphia, and it was an interesting experience, my first time living outside of the Deep South. And I, I discovered that I really, for the first time, discovered racial issues, not because I didn't experience them in the South, but because I was so comfortable in the South with the way things were. And I came up North, and I, I saw race play out differently in the North. My experience was, was really captured by uh, something I read from uh, the mayor uh, of Atlanta back in the 60s, Maynard Jackson, who, in talking about the the way race functioned in the North versus the South, he said, in the South, white people don't care how close black people are as long as they don't get too high. In the North, white people don't care how high black people get as long as they don't get too close. And I felt like that speaks to my experience. And it, and it dawned on me that this issue of, of race was not something that was in the South alone. It was throughout our country. Um, I spent two years running a, a, a ministry to international students where I got a chance for the first time to deal with the issue of what it means to be a majority or minority uh, person. Most of the time, my wife and I, we, we, the, it was a house that was a, uh, a large house, and we had anywhere from 12 to 15 international students living in the house with us in sort of an intentional community. Many were believers, but not all. We had Muslims. We had people from, from, uh, from China, from Japan, uh, various Middle East countries, South America, Europe, Africa, Egypt, a lot of, a lot of places, and we all sort of lived together trying to build community and for the first time, I experienced that I, as a white American, was not in the majority. In fact, there were times there were more Chinese people in the house than there were Americans. And so, so it was an interesting experience to be in a multi-ethnic world for a couple of years. But because I was American and because this was America, I still was the dominant culture, even though I wasn't the dominant numerically Everybody had to adapt to the culture that I found comfortable. And so it gave me a certain amount of awareness that, that, that you can have differences 
ethnically, racially, religiously, but there's still going to be a dominant culture tendency and a minority culture tendency. And if you've ever done missions work or if you've ever spent any time considerably overseas, you know the feeling to be in a place where you're not the majority culture. So that began to affect me as well. But the, the most significant thing that happened to me was back in 2015, we planted a church from Covenant Fellowship in a place called Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, which is, a, which is a, an older suburban town right outside the city limits. So we, our church is kind of out in the suburbs. Uh, probably, my guess is like, like Chaska, kind of out, maybe tw- we were about 20 miles outside the city. And... Um, but we had a number of people who, we had initially been close to the city. We'd, we'd moved out to build a building. A number of people stayed in the inner suburb in, with, you know, in Delco, is what we called it. And, uh, and so we wanted to plant a church for them so they'd have a, a neighborhood church. So we, we, we basically carved off a section of the church and, and, and started a church called Risen Hope Church in 2015. I went on the church plant on a two-year loan because it was a fairly large group, and the pastor who was planning was fairly new to our church and didn't know a lot of the people, and I knew everybody. And I'd, I'd raised my kids. We, we lived 12 years in Upper Darby, and so I was familiar with the area. And so the guys asked me to go and, and, and be involved in the plant for a couple of years. So I went. We all went thinking that this plant would be what was what we understood the population to primarily be there, which was a very Catholic area, very ethnically Catholic. There were, there were three large parishes within about about four miles of each other, active parishes, but a lot of people who had kind of drifted away from the Catholic Church of various ethnic backgrounds. And so that's what we thought we would get. A lot of folks who were kind of wandering away from the Catholic Church might find us. We were shocked with, within a month, we found that the people who were coming to the church were very different. Um, and they were coming from multiple ethnic backgrounds. And I think that, that the church, the way it was then and still is now, is about 40% white, about 30% African-American, and about 20%, about 15 or 16 other ethnicities, sort of all coming together in a church. We were not prepared for that. I was not prepared for that. I had no way of knowing how to relate to a multi-ethnic group of people. And so we were on a crash course for how do we do this? How do we build a church when people are coming from different church backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and build a community. And so a lot of this burden for me has come from the actual experience of how how do believers build community together when they can't count on the comfortableness of having the same racial or ethnic background? That was the question that I wrestled with. It's a question I still wrestle with understanding, and I, I'm gonna, I, I'll say things today, and I hope you don't hear me saying them flippantly, but I'm just saying them experientially. For the first time, uh, I was able to understand my whiteness as distinct from me. In other words, be able to see myself the way other people experience me a little bit. Sort of the self-awareness that my, what was natural to me, my my skin color, my, my ethnicity, my background was different to other people, and I needed to know how to separate who I am from these factors about who I am. So that may not make sense to you, but, but there's a sense where I now understand myself, my effect of being a white man in different contexts um, in a way I never did before. 
So that may be a new thought, but it is a profound thought for me. And it's one that I've been wrestling with and, 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 and processing because at the end of the day, I don't want to be known primarily for my skin color or for my ethnicity. I want to be known for who I am in Christ. I don't want those things to limit my witness to people or form their impressions of me more than Jesus Christ. I'm going to always have these things. They're part of me. I don't want to disdain them. I don't want to live in shame of them. But I don't want them to so define me that I relate to people out of that more than I do out of my new life in Jesus Christ. And so part of my passion for talking to my church and to talk to other churches is to help us recognize that our natural state of being is something that God wants to work with but also transform. And that's where we find ourselves today. We need a, a vision for ethnic harmony. It cannot come from the past. I've been in the past. It's a mess. There's not much there to work with. We've done more wrong than we've done right. We can't look to the present. If you've been around for the last year uh, and your mask has not covered your eyes and your ears, we can't get much of a clue from what our culture is doing with race and ethnicity these days. No matter what, where you are on the political spectrum, we're not, making, we're not gaining much ground. We're not getting much traction. So what we need to do is actually look to the future. And that's what we're doing today. My conviction is that, that racial and ethnic uh, harmony is possible in the church in a way it isn't anywhere else. But we must have an eternal perspective and work back from the eternal perspective to where we live right now. And that leads us to our text today. Let's read Revelation chapter 5. We're going to begin with verse 1. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw in the hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth was, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden fish, golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, 
saying, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time today, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Lord, bless the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, and the impartation of your heart through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some context. We're dropping into Revelation, which is not always a good thing to do. Um, There are three audiences we must keep in mind when we read the book of Revelation. There's an eternal audience. This is a revelation of what God wants the entire cosmos to know about the end of all things. The second audience is the people to whom this letter, it is a letter, is written. The churches John is carrying on his heart in exile on Patmos. They are churches opposed and oppressed in the world, people who feel like the whole purpose of God may be snuffed out in their generation. And then there's us. We are, right here in this room, by opening up this book and reading it, we are an intended audience of the book of Revelation. You and me. We who are trying to make sense of what's happened in our world over the past 12 months, we can draw from Revelation for our times if we're careful to remember this is God's word to his people across time and not a crystal ball to current events. Let me catch us up to get us up to this scene in in Revelation 5. Revelation 1.1 introduces this book as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave John to show his servants the things that must take place. John encounters the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 1.8 He then receives, in chapter 2 and 3, specific messages to be given to real churches that speak of the trials and temptations of God's people in this world. He has his first heavenly vision beginning in chapter 4. It's a vision of a throne room where he sees the holy grandeur of the heavenly worship of God for the first time. Yet there is business to attend to. The enthroned one holds a scroll in his hand. Chapter 5, verse 1. Mark Dever says, This scroll seems to be the document upon which the rest of history is written out. The scroll is God's answer to a world under the dominion of the evil one. But no one is worthy to open it. With this news, John's hopes are dashed. Without the scroll, the world in all its sin and corruption and evil is beyond rescue. There is no justice possible in this world 
without the scroll. And God's people are left in a merciless world where they don't belong. And he begins to weep. But a figure emerges. John is told that this is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the great conqueror. This figure is the only one able to open the scroll. He is the only hope. What John sees emerge is radically different than what he expects. The one who is worthy to open the scroll is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes depict divine authority and divine wisdom. This is the crucified king prophesied from of old. As the crucified king takes the scroll, the heavenly host fall down to worship. The words of their song are the focus of our time. Let's look again at Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So this morning we're going to do a couple things. We're going to consider in three brief points what Jesus, the crucified king, the one who is worthy, has done and how it makes the world work of ethnic harmony essential to God's church. So if you're tracking how we're going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to give you three very, fairly brief points, and then we're going to follow that up with three fairly brief applications. So there'll be points and then applications. The first point is this. In verse 9 we see, He ransomed people for God. Right there in the text. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. This is a new song because Jesus is ascending to the throne to take the seat of judgment and authority. But his worthiness to open the scroll comes because he left his throne. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we've just read in Revelation 5 
is that very thing. What Paul is doing, what you take is you take Philippians 2 and you play it right into Revelation 5. Because this exaltation that Paul talks about in, in, in Philippians 2 is expressed in Revelation 5. Jesus takes the throne because he humbled himself. He became the lamb that was slain. What gives him the right to open the seal is not that he's the son of God, but that he's the son of God who has been slain for sin. He has earned the right to open the seals, to release the judgment of God and the redemption of God. That's what's being expressed here. Taking the scroll, he now takes He ascends to the seat of judgment. This is the glory of redemption. Jesus has paid the just penalty for our sin with his own blood. It has happened. It is a finished work. If you're here today and you do not know what will happen to you when that scroll is read and your fate is declared, There is mercy at this throne because the one who sits on it is the lamb who was slain for you. Receive the lamb who was slain for you. Confess that you deserve the judgment of God for your sins and place your hope entirely on the ransom blood of Jesus for you. See your name written in the Lamb's book of life. He is worthy of your trust because he has died for your sins. That's the first point. We have been ransomed by the blood of Christ. The second point, he has made them a kingdom and priest to our God. You see that in verse 10. Grammatically and situationally, this is a present status. He, we are a kingdom and are priests to our God. We have received a call to be priests of the kingdom. Ed Welch describes this priestly call like this. As priests, we bless others. Having known the blessing of the Lord's unwavering faithfulness, We also bless others in his name. We are situated at the juncture of heaven and earth. That's where we are right now. You walk out of these doors. You walk in the juncture between heaven and earth. You represent heaven wherever you go. That's what it means to be a priest. From that place, we are in a position to hear the blessing of God and distribute it to others. This might be, Welch says, the best part of our priestly work. This is a beautiful summary of our missional call, of our evangelical call as the people and as the church. We remain here on earth for one reason. To bring the good news of the kingdom to lost people. 
That's why we remain on earth. That's why we remain in America. That's why we remain in this country. Because we bring the news of another country. And that country is where we really belong. We intercede for a lost and hurting world before the throne of God. This is our call from the king. And then the third point, also verse 10, they shall reign on the earth. Guess what, folks? We win in the end. You may not feel like this is a winning year. In football, maybe not. We were four and something because we tied a game. The Eagles, and we fired our coach who took us to the Super Bowl, and we fired our franchise quarterback. We traded him for nothing. It has not been a winning year in my world. But we win in the end. We are the people of the victory. One of the things I find interesting is how we tend to think that winning is kind of up to us here, right? That God somehow needs us to come off the bench and contribute valuable minutes to the effort. Now, why else am I on the team if I'm not meant to contribute to the win? I finished a four-year slow read through the Bible on New Year's Day. In the providence of God, the chapters I read on the first day of 2021 were Revelation 21 and 22. You're probably familiar with them. They talk about the glories of the heavenly kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. When he says they shall reign on the earth, when John says it in chapter 5, he's Looking ahead to that, this is what's in view here. God's people, free of sin, free of pain, free of troubles, free of sorrow, free of temptation, free of death itself, free of oppression. Enjoying eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But John promises between chapter 5 and chapter 21 that things will get worse. That's what the scroll says when it's opened. Many people wonder if that started happening this past year. Maybe it has. I don't know. Is what we've experienced found somewhere in the scroll? It's beyond me to know. Maybe we're a little worried about political issues, about pandemic viruses, about economic instability, about social injustice about things that seem behind the scenes that are driving things that we see, about the destruction of our way of life. It can seem like the other side is winning and we should do something about it. But one of the things that grabbed me as I was reading through the final judgments which cover Revelation 6 through 20 is this. In the great battle of Armageddon, when all the forces of evil array against all the forces of God, we Christians, you and I, never lift a finger. 
We don't shoot a gun. We don't launch a missile. We don't hack a server. We don't tear down statues. We don't take over government buildings. Nowhere in Revelation do believers fight at all. What do we see believers do in this final fight? We see them remain faithful to Jesus against both the persecutions and the temptations of this world. We see them witness to the saving mercies of God to people who are falling under judgment. And we watch, we see them watch and worship as Jesus fulfills his promise to finish bringing the kingdom that he established when he came in the first place 2,000 years ago. That's what we do. We need to keep that in mind. We will reign on earth because he wins the victory. So, I want to begin to make some points on how this relates to the issue of ethnic harmony by focusing on who are these people spoken about in this text, verses 5 and 10. The reason this text is crucial for our understanding of racial and ethnic harmony is because of what it says about who has been ransomed, who are the priests, and who will reign. They are, as John says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. This, is, this isn't just a way of saying, well, it's kind of like everybody's. There's people from all over the place going get to get in. No, this language is very significant in the Bible. You see it way back in Genesis 10, in verse 20 and 31, speaking of the spread of a new mankind through Noah's sons after the flood. In Daniel 7, we see almost the exact same Seen as the Son of Man takes his throne, surrounded by diverse people, languages, and nations. It's behind the words of Jesus in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 when he tells the disciples to, to go and make disciples of all nations. Paul takes it up in Colossians 3:11 when he identifies representatives of particular racial, ethnic, and national groups and, and says they are all one in Christ. Seven times in Revelation alone, this diversity is described. Two times, here in one other place, it references the redeemed people of God. The other five times, it references either those who are already under judgment or those who are in the balance. This language is part of the larger storyline of human diversity and God's plan of redemption and judgment throughout the history and into eternity. In her book, Mother to Son, Jasmine Holmes notes, the Bible is full of ethnicity, from the parents of every ethnicity imaginable in Genesis to the union of every ethnicity imaginable in Revelation. It's a part of God's story, and it's a part of yours. We are bound up in the ethnic story as much as we're bound up 
in the redemptive story. We need to embrace that to understand fully what God is doing. What do we take from the Bible story diversity? We take that ethnic diversity is meant to manifest the diversity of God. We take that because of sin, ethnic diversity is ripe for disharmony and cultural pride. We take that humankind from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship the idols of their culture and oppose the worship of God. There is no ethnically holy people. We take that God's grand redemptive plan is to save and unite diverse people in Jesus Christ. And we learn that heaven is populated by beautiful harmony in ethnic diversity. We want to embrace that. We want to see that as part of our vision. What does the Bible stress? Why does the Bible stress that Jesus has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation simply because of this? It means this. There is no place you can come from There is no people you can belong to. There is no group you can be identified with where Jesus can't save you. At the beginning of the new year, I was praying with some community group leaders, and we were praying for the persecuted church. And I want to give you a list of some of the folks we prayed for. I got this from Voice of the Martyrs. I get a, a, a weekly prayer bulletin just to pray for people. And here's the things we were praying for. We prayed for 13 Christian families beaten and driven out of their homes in Vietnam. We prayed for a Christian couple in Laos who have been threatened with prison. We prayed for 84 Christian families who have been driven from their village in India. For a Christian family who regularly has to flee to different cities to escape persecution in Egypt. We pray for a new believer who has been beaten and threatened with death by his own family in Syria. For a church who wept and worshipped as they watched authorities destroy their church building in Cuba. We pray for an elderly Christian woman deteriorating in an Iranian prison. We pray for a Chinese ministry leader who is receiving death threats from the Beijing government while he lives right here in the United States. Brothers and sisters, these are people we will meet in heaven. It will look far more diverse than most of our lives can imagine. It's people like this who make me thankful that it won't just be people like me in heaven. So some brief applications. One, being ransomed for God is the most important thing about us. This is important to remember in an area of identity politics. Identity politics takes something about me that I find important and demands other people besides me find it important as well. Identity politics has no color. It has no gender. It has no left wing. It has no right wing. It has no particular ideology but the worship of self.
Identity politics comes from identity lies that say my rights are worthy, my needs are worthy, my grievances are worthy, my feelings are worthy, my political views are worthy, my freedoms are worthy, my anger is worthy, my oppression is worthy, my patriotism is worthy, my minority status is worthy, my accomplishments are worthy, my causes are worthy, my religious traditions are worthy, and on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, there will be no validation of self around the throne. The lamb slain for the sins of the world, seated on the throne of judgment, only he is worthy. If there is anything in your life that you think think is worthy of people respecting, then you are compromising the worthiness of Christ. Number two, our call as a kingdom and priest should shape how we live right now. We have a powerful representative role to play right now. We don't represent our tribe. We represent our king. Our priestly function calls us to be faithfully representing Jesus. Where there is injustice, we can stand, not in our ethnicity, but in our priesthood on the side of justice. We can march with others against injustice. We can march with others for change in our political process. We can march with others for the unborn. But brothers and sisters, we never march like others march. Because we live with our different call. We march and protest and post and debate with a holy call as priests of the living God. We march and protest and post and debate in the fear of God as intercessors in a sin-sick world and as priests of the Lamb who is now on the throne. Our kingdom is not of this world. Our citizenship is, not in, is in heaven. Our home is the household of faith. Our identity is at the throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, let's live in these difficult days as priests of Jesus Christ. Let that sink into your self-identity. When you check your news feed, when you look at your social media, when you ponder what's going on and how it affects you, think first I'm a priest. How should I respond? And our third point is this. What's happening around the throne should be beginning in our church. I, I love my country. I weep at times for my country. I fear at times for my country. And frankly, I'm concerned for the church in my country. But I'm not hopeless. As I close, I want to take you to a place where I go sometimes just to get perspective. I love to walk around historic Philadelphia just to remind myself of what I really value being an American. It's filled with the amazing story of how we came to be a country. But I always end at some point at a place called Washington Square. It's a, it's a city square park, catty corner to Independence Hall. 
where the Declaration of Independence was debated and ratified, where the Constitution was debated and ratified, where the Bill of Rights was debated and ratified. To me, Washington Square is hallowed ground. To the natural eye, Washington Square is just a city park where people walk their dogs, read their books, eat their cheesesteaks, enjoy the shade of the city. But underneath the lawn and paths and trees of Washington Square, there's a cemetery. In the ground, even to this day, are up to 5,000 men and women buried during the days of the founding of our country. Under the ground on one half of the park are buried the remains of patriot soldiers who were captured by the British. They died as prisoners of war when England occupied, when the British Army occupied Philadelphia for about nine months, they were taken to Philadelphia and they were put into the prison and they were put into Independence Hall where many of them died. Just a few hundred feet from where the Declaration of Independence was first read. They died as prisoners of war in the birthplace of our freedom. Many of these soldiers were believers in Jesus. Men whom you and I will see one day around the throne of God. The other half of the park are buried black men and black women, slave and free. American-born and slave ship immigrants. Many of them died in the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 when 10% of the city population was wiped out in two months. Many of these black people who died in the summer of 1793 thought that they could survive the disease because they had survived so much else in slavery. Led by their pastors, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, the Christians among them volunteered to minister to the sick and dying white neighbors as their act of civic duty. They took care of the sick, they buried the dead. And they died. They took this risk and made this sacrifice because they wanted to be part of what was being built in their new country. Though they were disdained by many of the people they were helping. We will meet them around the throne as well. These white men and these black women and men, unknown now to history, 
all died because they were willing to sacrifice for something greater than themselves. Each in their own way paid the ultimate cost for an idea of freedom they never got a chance to see. Freedom's a complicated idea. An idea we haven't totally figured out to this date. When I stand in Washington Square, I force myself to picture these men and women in my, in my mind united in the grave when they were never united in life. I force myself to ponder between the graves of Washington Square and the glory of the throne of Christ. What can we be? What can you and I be? Can we not build in the church something the world has never been able to build? A true harmony in ethnic and racial diversity. A true common cause. A little bit of true heaven on earth. Can we not at least work at it with the glorious throne as our visionary blueprint? It's not us, sovereign grace brothers and sisters, then who? That's why I'm in the game on racial and ethnic harmony. And I invite you, in whatever capacity God gives you opportunity, to join with me. And in doing that, let me leave you with something to hang your, your vision on. The singers in, in John 5, 9, and 10 are the heavenly hosts. We observe them singing. But there's another song sung in Revelation 7, and this is our song, and it's spoken of like this, Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that had no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, that's you and me, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just ask you to help us, God. We, we live in a fractured world and left to ourselves. We were just hammer on the fractures, God. I pray that we'd be different people. I pray that we'd be priests, God. I pray that we would be people whose, whose only sense of worthiness belongs to you. Lord, I pray that in our opportunities at work, I pray that, Lord, there would be people, Lord, who come in increasing numbers to this church who see a different spirit, who come from a different race or come from a different ethnic background, who come from a different country maybe, and, they, and what they experience here is something that tastes like the throne of God. It takes work, Lord. It takes listening. It takes humility. It takes willing to be viewed by people And not feel like you're being understood. I pray that you'd help us all, God. That's the, the nature of humility, Lord. To not rise up to define and defend ourselves for others. But to let you do that for us.
Lord, bless this church. Let it love well. Let it serve you well in Jesus' name. Amen.